Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Talking about gut-wrenching and emotional. Yesterday, of course, uh, was the uh, bail hearing for Paul Bernardo uh, up in Bath, Ontario, uh, near the penitentiary in which he has uh, been for the last little while. Uh, as we know now, as you we heard reported, and everybody seems to know by now, of course, parole was denied. But uh, going through a situation like that had to be just gut-wrenching. Paul Bernardo, uh, of course, uh, convicted of uh, killing Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey, was denied parole. parole rather. Susan Claremont, uh, award-winning uh, j- journalist with the Hamilton Spectator, was there uh, for the uh, hearing yesterday, and she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about that. Susan, thanks so much for the time. I know it's a busy day for you. It's uh, breaking news about Bajero and this, and let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your experience yesterday at, at Bath, Ontario. Yeah, it was uh, it, w- it was a big day. Um, you know, this case, the the Bernardo case, um, it's been twenty five years, and for those of us who are of a certain age, Bill, and um, you know, remember uh, all of that. It's it, it hits very close to home for a lot of people. This this case um, it was really a, a turning point for a lot of Canadians. Well, listen, if, and I'm glad you brought that up because I, I remember. I, geez, I remember talking to the family members on the show, and we weren't quite sure what was going on. And I remember the billboard ads: "Look for this car," because they thought at that time it was a gold-colored sports car that they were looking for. Uh, the, this whole of Southern Ontario was was just uh, you know on edge because they didn't know what happened to these girls. They didn't know what was going on, etc. And uh, it was slow to get information. I mean, it was a very troubling time, uh, which of course culminated with the trial. And then of course there was the plea bargain that that came into this. Uh, boy, I don't know that we ever. I, I the families. I know and we'll talk about them in a couple of seconds, Susan. But I don't think anybody's ever going to get over that. That lived through that experience. No, I don't think so either. I think for for most of us there is some kind of personal element to it. It may not be that, that we um, directly knew anybody involved, but, you know, for example, I was a, I was a university student um, when the Scarborough rapist was attacking women there, and I remember talking to my, my housemates at university who were girls from Scarborough, and they talked about how, you know, their parents wouldn't let them anywhere alone because of, of the fear surrounding the rates. So I think for many of us, we have we feel like we have a personal connection to what happened. So with that in mind, and, and just to set the scene in that fashion, and, and I think everybody probably that was there yesterday, and including the families, uh, in varying degrees, of course, uh, still carry some of the scars from this. So explain, now you were not actually in the room for the hearing, were you? No, this was different from any other parole hearing I've attended, um, likely because of the, the large volume of media who were um, wanting to be there. So normally I'm in the same room as the offender and you know the families or the victims. Uh, this time, uh, Bernardo stayed at his prison, which is Millhaven, a maximum security prison, uh, and he was in a room with the members of the parole board and members of the Mahaffey and French families and uh, a woman who was one of his rape victims. Uh, the media, we were next door at Bath Institution, which is a medium security prison, and we were watching it all by video. Somebody asked me this morning, how come there's no Twitter activity? Uh, Usually there are updates, as as you did with some of the major trials. You weren't allowed to, were you? 
No, there's very strict rules about what you can take into a prison. Um, they did bend the rules somewhat for the media yesterday, and uh, we were sort of um, given use of a of a sally port of a garage, basically, um, for camera equipment and, and phones and that sort of thing. But once we went into the prison proper and into the room where we watched the hearing, um, pen and paper, that was all we were allowed. It's a, a throwback, I guess, for an awful lot of you. Uh, couldn't remember how to do cursive, I guess. Uh, how did how did it proceed? Now we we know about the victim impact statements and some very powerful words uh, from the from the both families that were involved in this. Yeah, from both families as well as the woman who was yeah. uh, one of his rape victims. So the hearing started with. Um, uh, with those victim impact statements, uh, which had to be written beforehand and vetted by the Parole Board of Canada, um, something that uh, always makes me angry, um, that the words that the, the victims are, are actually edited. Um, but they were powerful nonetheless. Um, you know, all three women who spoke, it was the two moms yeah. and, the, and the rape victim, talked about how they've never recovered, how, how their lives have been uh, changed forever, how every day is a struggle, how they have worked so hard over the past 25 years to try and do some healing, and how this parole hearing yesterday um, just ripped open all those wounds. The texts uh, of those two presentations, of course, are all over social media right now, and it's, uh, I, I tell you, it's, it's, it's very difficult to read and not get emotional, isn't it? Yeah, and you and you were there listening to it as it was being read. Yeah, it's it's absolutely heart wrenching. Um, you know, uh, uh, the part that really got me was when um, Leslie Mahaffey's mom spoke about her son, who was just seven when his sister was kidnapped and murdered, and um, you know has lived his whole life knowing um, knowing her fate. Um, it, it just you know, terrible things um, that I don't think, you know, society will ever get over. Well, the family broke up, uh, you know, the, the marriage broke up. Uh, she's, uh, Debbie mentioned, I guess, in her impact statement that she's still suffering PTSD. And of course, that has an impact on every facet of her life, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the rape victim talked about how the, she's a mom now and how she fears all the time um, for her child's safety. Um, it, you know, it, it just keeps going and going and going 25 years afterwards, and it will never, ever end. One of the more powerful statements from Debbie Mahaffey yesterday, that even this, the, the hearing that you were at yesterday allows Bernardo to abduct our beautiful memories uh, of, uh, of the girls. And, and uh, it, it just, I think, brings home just how crushing this is. It, it does reopen wounds. I know that just sounds like a cliche, but these are people that have been living it for 25 years. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and when you think about how these hearings are set up and, you know, the Mahaffey family, the French family, and, and the victim, they are sitting in a very small room with Paul Bernardo. You know, it's not a courtroom. There are no um, barriers between them and and Bernardo. He's sitting at a table just feet away from them. And they have to listen to him talk virtually uninterrupted for hours 
about um, what a great guy he is, about how he's changed, about things that he did to his victims. They're having to sit there and listen to all of this while waiting to find out if he's going to be allowed his freedom. The word we got up before this started yesterday, Susan, from the lawyer that was representing Bernardo said that that he was remorseful for this. And, And I think some of us had anticipated, since they're going to be in the same room, that there might have been some dialogue or might have been some statement from Bernardo to the families. Did that happen? No. No, he he never offered any kind of direct apology to anybody. Uh, what he did say is that he cries every day um, because of what he did. He, he actually said that many, many times throughout the hearing. But it was unclear to me whether he is crying because... He is genuinely remorseful for what he did, um, and I don't think that's the case. I think he cries because um, he doesn't like being in prison, and he feels sorry for himself. And at one point, he actually said, um, you know, it's, it's really hard being me, being Paul Bernardo in prison. That's, that's really tough. And, you know, there were moments like that throughout the hearing where he said the most callous, absurd, um, uh, maddening things. And the room full of media that I was with, I mean, we weren't actually in the hearing room. I mean, there were times when people were laughing, um, not because it was funny, but because it, it was just, we were so incredulous. We just could not believe the things that he was saying. Well, incredulous uh, that he would have the, the nerve to actually do this. And by the way, to his point, I saw that this morning too, and I thought, I'm sure the French and Mahaffey families cry every day too uh, for, much, for much different reasons. But I, I was struck by and, and, and Bernardo's attempt from, from what I've seen, the, the transcripts of this uh, yesterday, Susan, that he almost tried to paint himself as a victim. Yeah, so um, he talked about why he did the things that he did. And he says that um, it was because of low self-esteem. He talked about how, as a child, he was he was born tongue-tied, which is a, a, a genuine medical condition where um, uh, a, a baby's tongue doesn't work properly. And uh, up until the age of seven, Bernardo says that nobody could understand what he was saying until he had um, a medical procedure and therapy and, and was able to talk properly. And he said that that experience um, ruined him for life. And uh, he had low self-esteem. And the only way he could boost his self-esteem, boost was the word he used, was to rape and kill women. Which I, I find just remarkable that he'd actually have the audacity to talk about that. Uh, I, I, you know, there are, you're right, it's a, a valid medical condition, and, and it doesn't happen very often. Uh, but from my understanding, and I'm only doing this anecdotally, uh, the people that do have that, and there is a medical procedure to fix it, uh, don't often turn into rapists. I mean, but he tries to draw that connection and say, well, that, my medical condition drove me to do this. There had to be a lot of eyes rolling in your room when that was said. Yeah, it's it's just complete BS. And, um, I mean, he is a diagnosed psychopath. I mean, uh, like an off-the-scale diagnosed psychopath. Um, you know, he, he says that uh, he sh- wanted to assure the public that he's all better now. 
and um, is, is no cause for concern that he would never hurt anybody. In fact, he talked about how he's a nice guy. He wakes up every morning in prison and he's pleasant to everybody and um, we have nothing to be afraid of. But one of the first things, and we've learned far more about psychopaths than we probably want to because of the high level and, and the high uh, profile of some of the people that have been you know, going on trial in the last little while, is they take no responsibility for their actions. And judging from Bernardo's comments yesterday, he still doesn't. He still doesn't. Um, he is extremely manipulative. Um, one of the things that I, I thought was interesting was, um, you know, we've often heard uh, Bernardo described as being fairly intelligent. Um, and, you know, his former wife, Carla Homolka, um, also described as fairly intelligent. But I didn't see any of that yesterday. And it actually raised speculation amongst the journalists about what um, 25 years of solitary confinement does to a person. Um, Bernardo couldn't really form a proper sentence. Um, he was scattered. He made very little sense most of the time, these long, rambling speeches that he gave. Um, but I think as far as his, his psychology uh, goes, I think it's really important for people to understand that there, there is no cure for psychopathy. Someone who is a psychopath is always a psychopath. There is no treatment for it. There is no cure for it. I was struck by one of the other comments he made, too. As you just mentioned, Susan, he was complaining about being, in, in for all intents and purposes, uh, by himself there in solitary. Uh, but said when he does have human contact, uh, the other people ridicule him, uh, which uh, I guess underscores what we've talked about in the past, that there's a, a quote-unquote justice system within prisons, too, isn't there? There is, and I would expect that he is the lowest of the low. Um, his notoriety, his... Um, sex crimes is preying on on children um that would not make him popular with other inmates uh a lot of people breathing a sigh of relief when we found out that after just 30 minutes the the panel decided to deny his parole uh but he we could go through this whole thing again on two years i understand yeah so uh the way the rules work is once the offender uh has his first hearing which was at bernardo's request um, now it sort of starts this cycle of um, having a new hearing every two years. So that means that the French and Mahaffey families and all of the other victims um, will go through this again in 2020. It is the system, and uh, it uh, can be good and it can be ugly, and I think we saw maybe a little bit of both yesterday. Uh, great reporting on this, too. It's a great piece. Bernardo denied parole in today's Hamilton Spectator. Susan, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. Thanks very much, Bill. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. So what happened at Queen's Park yesterday? What was this dust-up in the legislature? Uh, well, according to uh, what we're hearing from the two principals here, Ontario PC MPP uh, Donna Skelly uh, alleges that NDP leader Andrew Horvath uh, walked across the floor in the legislature and pushed her. Now, Ms. Horvath has denied the allegations. Uh, well, here's what Councillor er, Donna Skelly had to say. At the conclusion of debate during the division bells yesterday, the member from Hamilton Centre crossed the chamber and initiated unwanted and intentional physical contact with me. Well, uh, that was the accusation, and here's how Andrea Horvath uh, responded. So as a colleague, I was going over to say to her, as someone who's known her for 20 years, like, Donna, what's, what's that all about? And she 
you know, she how hard did you How are they behaving? How are they? Are you saying that they're making this up? Again, again, yes, I am absolutely saying that this is not true. This is not what happened. I simply tapped the woman on the shoulder, and in fact, when she, she when she reacted, again, it was just I was shocked. How I hard said, did you tap her? You know, this is silliness. The bottom line is this. This government is acting in a way that is hyper-partisan, completely chaotic, and diverting from what is important here in this province. Thanks to uh, CBC for the audio on that. Uh, so there are the two sides on this. Uh, obviously, I don't know what the speaker is going to have to do about this, but it does bring into question, of course, the decorum about what goes on at uh, Queen's Park. And we've seen examples like this in Parliament, too. Joining us to uh, analyze this is uh, Peter Grave, Professor of Political Science from McMaster University. Uh, thanks for the join uh, joining us, Peter. Good to have you on again. My pleasure. Now, I know you usually talk about political science. We don't usually get into the fine art of, of, of boxing, but let's uh, try to blend the two if we can fight these two things. What's your read on what happened yesterday? Well, I mean, at the moment it's kind of a, a he says, she says, but, uh, I mean, presumably there was some sort of, uh, you know, physical um push or tap, uh, it, in a way it doesn't really matter. I mean, a few years ago we had uh, Ruth Ellen Brosseau uh, complaining about the Prime Minister elbowing her, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, a lot of people, I think, wrongly uh, got on this whole thing about her being a drama queen, <laughs> but the thing is that you don't lay hands on other people in the legislature, and so in this instance, I mean, it would seem that Andrew Horvath uh, uh, broke the rules of the legislature. Uh, you know, the fact that the speaker didn't see it and the clerks didn't see it and there's not video evidence means that probably the speaker can't make a finding in this case against Andrea Horvath. But, you know, it remains that uh, it seems like she did uh, contravene uh, the rules of the House. It's not unusual for things, Peter, to get testy in the legislatures at Queen's Park or in Parliament Hill. But are, are they crossing the line here, literally? Well, I mean, I think we have a new legislature. There's a lot of new members who were recently elected. Uh, a government that is running in a pretty partisan uh, fashion with the idea that having, you know, one, uh, well, I guess 40% of the vote, but a majority of the seats, that they can do whatever they want for the next four years. And, of course, the whole point of our parliamentary system is that we have an opposition that uh, is able to shed light on what the government is doing and slow them down. And so I think, uh, you know, the two parties are in a very kind of testy moment, and the new members still have to learn what the rules of decorum are in the place. So, I mean, I think in this instance there was some argument that uh, some conservative members were trying to uh, put paper in front of the cameras <laughs> during a speech, which, uh, you know, again, I mean, it looks bad, I think, on all parties when you see this kind of behavior. I mean, there's certainly ways in which uh, we expect opposition parties, whether it's the conservatives in Ottawa or the NDP in Queen's Park, to use all the tactics they can to slow down the passage of bills and draw attention to things that they think are uh, are problems. But uh, there's also, I think, an early stage in a legislature where the newcomers, particularly those who, uh, you know, were, are new on the government benches, get swept in by a, uh, a bit of a landslide. Uh, they haven't been given much in the way of responsibility in cabinet, uh, can easily, you know, begin finding, you know, interest in just, you know, playing very kind of partisan games. I think after a couple of years, they look at themselves in the mirror, or they look at how other people make things work, um, because you do have to work across the aisle to actually make things happen, uh, and things calm down a little. It's it's amazing. I mean, you know, we all took civics classes at some point in our education, and uh, many of us, and I can remember when we actually went up to Ottawa and actually sat in on an afternoon session just to get an idea as to how things are going. And, of course, you're very impressed with the first time you go in there as a high school student and see what's going on. But now that you watch it, it's televised now, 
Uh, it's it's amazing to see the the lengths that they would go to try to be well partisan. In other words, I mean, like you say, c- trying to cover up the TV cameras or uh, even the the idea of how you know howling who are howling as somebody's trying to speak. Uh, it, it's really it's it's it, you have to wonder about decorum. It's it's not the sort of thing that makes you proud of the way that the, the government actually works. Yeah, I mean, that's what I always hear from high school uh, teachers when they talk about taking their classes to question period and how they regret it because <laughs> parliamentarians were, you know, I mean, the, the, the students are shocked at the at the kind of behavior that they see. Uh, you know, it doesn't seem like adults would act that way normally. Um, so, I mean, I think you do have to have the issue that on the one hand, the coverage of politics increasingly focuses around question period, and so everything is placed on trying to get the zinger in or the line that will be on the the evening news and then i mean the rest of the day uh the sort of the process of debates has become so pro forma no one shows up to hear uh, you know the great orators of the past uh, i mean people they they just need enough people in the house to make sure that they have quorum or if there's a surprise vote they have enough people to win it for their side but uh yeah it's not really a place uh of great debate uh, and where we are seeing the important issues of the day discussed in that manner and so, yeah, there's not a lot. It, it's hard. I mean, and this is a crisis, I think, for legislatures in many countries is to find their relevance in an era when so much of the decision making is in the executive, in cabinet, around the prime minister. Uh, what is the role of the legislature in that context? Would it have been a factor that, that to use the old sports analogy, these two teams don't like each other? I mean, you know, the PCs and the NDP are on polar opposites when it comes to political philosophy, really. Yeah, uh, that's certainly the case. Uh, I mean, and sometimes, you know, the two those two parties were united in their hatred of the Liberals. <laughs> in <some laughs> yeah. ways to, uh, but, I mean, I think we have seen in a number of provincial legislatures, I think, uh, you know, B.C. and Saskatchewan in particular, you have a really strong uh, left-right polarization, uh, and it does lead to uh, moments where yeah, the rules of the legislature uh, are stretched in a way that's not probably that healthy. Um, but I, I think in this case, I mean, you have a, we're still close to that election. Uh, you have a government in place that is, you know, thought it should have won the last three elections. It's been waiting a long time. It's kind of impatient to get things moving. There's a lot of people who are new there uh, who don't really understand the rules of the place yet and the culture of, of what you need to do if you're really going to be an effective parliamentarian. And, and so I think those are things that are, that are creating extra heat. Uh, I mean, at a certain point, I think uh, both parties realize that if they want to get things done, uh, they have to bring the the temperature level down uh, to be able to be more effective in engaging each other. Let's let's talk about the role of the speaker here, who's really supposed to be the referee, the one that kind of keeps everything in order here. Uh, invariably, it's usually if it's a majority government, it's a member of that government, and there's always that question of how partisan is it. And I I don't want to you know put that cloak on everybody, but I mean there's always a concern about how the rulings are in a situation like this. How how would Ted Arnott, who is the current speaker in the legislature now, handle a situation like this? As you say, it there's not a whole lot of of data here. There's not a whole lot of evidence about anything. Yeah, well, I mean, I suspect he goes back and looks at how these were these situations were dealt with in the past, and has he has the the richness of having. Uh, a number of clerks around him with much, uh, you know, longer legislative experience. Uh, and I think in a case like this, you know, if the speaker did not see anything and the clerks didn't see anything and there's no, you know, video or audio proof, uh, the speaker is in a hard position. Uh, I suspect probably his ruling will be that he, he's unable to make a ruling because of lack of any sort of basis to, to make the decision and then try to make some kind of claim about 
the necessity of the members to, to raise their standard of behavior. You know, I, I'm concerned, as I'm sure you are, about about attitudes and about, like you say, the, the willingness or lack of willingness, actually, uh, to work together. I, I can remember Peter years ago talking with uh, Dom, my good friend Dominic Agostino when he was in the legislature. And, and Dominic, of course, was known for his bombast. I mean, he, he knew how to, to, to let it go, of course, then there. And he would attack, you know, as he was an opposition, of course. Uh, attacked the parties and was great at it. But he, I asked him, I said, do, do you guys really hate each other? He says, no, more often than not, we go for a beer after. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a certain showmanship to what goes on in the legislature. Uh, I'm not so sure that that going for a beer after is going on anymore. I just see that there seems to be uh, a real difference now in, in attitudes in Parliament Hill and in Queen's Park. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think it always varies a bit. There's some parliamentarians, particularly ones that have been there for a while and, and don't actually see a way forward into cabinet, uh, who try to find new ways of working. And so I think of, you know, Michael Chong and the Conservative Party, uh, Kennedy Stewart and the NDP would have been another example, uh, you know, who begin to say, well, actually, you know, if, if, you don't, if you don't have the dream of being a cabinet minister or being loved by your party leader, you can actually uh, work quite effectively with members in the opposition in terms of trying to get certain private members' bills through or changing the rules of the legislature to, to create more space for, for members of parliament. So, uh, you know, you still sometimes see that, but I think you're right that uh, mostly uh, the members of, of parliament re- become very regimented into their teams, and I think the manner in which we cover politics maybe also increases that as uh, it becomes so much more tied around specific leaders, and so the role of parliamentarians is diminished in the in the way of thinking about well, could you have a career that wasn't simply just being, you know, the yes person for the leader uh, becomes harder to sustain. With uh, the, the death of John McCain down in the States, of course, a, a couple of months ago, I guess now, uh, they, they characterized him, and I've heard this with some other folks that have been around for the longest time, as uh, somebody that would reach across the aisle, that was, you know, was bipartisan when it came to key issues and had to do that. Uh, but to your point, we don't see a whole lot of that anymore, do we? No, I mean, obviously, the American system is a different one. I mean, it's it's based on this idea that you, you don't want a kind of a firm division into government and, and opposition, right? You have the executive power and the president, and the legislature is meant to, to act separately from it, whereas in our system, you actually do want a kind of strong government versus opposition dynamic, because uh, the belief is that, you know, a strong opposition will shed light on things that the government's doing and allow us to make decisions about as citizens, you know, to make judgments about whether... Uh, we agree or not with what the government's doing. But, you know, having said that, I mean, there's ways in which that can be done, uh, you know, better or not as well. And to get back to your kind of your your story about Dominic Agostino, I mean, certainly I've heard people complain about specifically the, the showmanship and the, the showboating in the, the House and then the fact that they're friends afterwards and it kind of makes them feel like the whole thing is a bit of a phony show. So, I mean, there, there's that aspect too where maybe we could do with less showboating and a bit more of kind of concrete uh, vision and uh, making it clear about how the government and the opposition disagree on the kind of fundamental principles rather than about trying to blow up some kind of scandal or, or issue of the day. But isn't that because, for better or worse, we, we live in the age of the soundbite? I mean, they, everybody wants that 10-second clip that's going to be played on the radio or on the tele- television news that evening? I suppose, although, I mean, you might look at what the NDP is doing as the opposition and, and say that every day they're kind of coming up with some kind of new thing that they claim is a, the greatest outrage ever. And that, that probably doesn't serve them very well as compared to beginning to develop a set of ideas about how the government falls short. Uh, you know, to say, well, maybe they're bad managers because they you know, they cancel uh, cap and trade and it's going to cost us $4 billion over three years or, you know, they make other decisions. So there may be a way, too, though, that parties... Uh, fall into that idea that you want to clip that day, 
but uh, I think especially for oppositions who have to try and craft an alternative idea about what the province should be, uh, you lose uh, the opportunity to define the set of values that set you apart. How do you re-establish decorum? I, I mean, because I've always used, I'm, I'm a political, uh, you know, not just uh, like a lot of other folks that are listening to this show. I mean, I even watch Question Period from the British Parliament, uh, you know, because I, I, I find it instructive. Uh, they have a different attitude. That's not to say there aren't some catcalls, et cetera, but they seem to have a lot more respect for each other uh, as, as people are speaking. We seem to have lost that on this side of the ocean. Yeah, I mean, certainly the British House of Commons is a much bigger body, and so there's a lot of people there who know they're never going to get a sniff of power. And so I think it, it produces a slightly different relationship between the backbench and the ministers. The backbenchers are less keen to be there as clapping seals, uh, and so I think that takes the temperature down a, a certain degree. I mean, I think, you know, decorum probably comes from two things. One is to say, well, uh, if you actually want this place to function, uh, you can't have it always at that high point of partisanship, and so you, you, you have the sort of older heads and the calmer heads prevailing over time. I think the other thing is the shaming of the public. Uh, to the extent that people, you know, come back from question period and say, I can't believe my students saw that, <laughs> like <laughs> kindergarten, uh, you know, that doesn't do a lot. But, I mean, if, if regularly we ask questions, you know, as in this case, I mean, it seems like uh, there's a lot of important decisions being made at Queen's Park these days. Uh, you know, why are uh, both our opposition and government, uh, you know, members uh, spending their time arguing about whether it was a tap or a shove? Uh, there's a way we might also ask them to, to improve their behavior so that we can actually pay attention to, you know, what happened at Queen's Park yesterday in terms of the government's plans and achievements. So, and to that point, instead of pointing the finger at the, at the uh, speaker and simply saying, well, you should have controlled this, uh, I, I think the onus is really on the party leaders, isn't it, to, to, to establish that decorum and just say, look, at, we're going to do this in a professional manner? Yeah, I think that certainly uh, the party leaders, uh, also the House leaders, whips, uh, you know, there's a, a number of senior members who I think really demonstrate what it takes to, to, to play that role. I think in this case where you have a premier of the province who has, you know, absolutely uh, no experience in a parliamentary system, uh, you know, whose knowledge of government is his time as a, a member of a city council, uh, you do have a problem of, uh, of leadership on the government side. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously Andrea Horvath is also someone who can get hot, and in this case I think that also played in uh, it's kind of again I, I you know reading uh, the daily uh, responses of the NDP to what the government is doing uh, the language of outrage uh, and despicable and uh, you know really hot adjectives seem to be uh, present and I don't think that's helping in terms of uh, the behavior of the opposition as well does this go away now I mean I I, I agree with you I don't think a whole lot's going to come of this I don't think the speaker can rule on anything right now except to say hey look at everybody let's be a little more mature. Uh, but but does this does this deepen the divide, or is it going to be a, a teaching moment for everyone? Uh, well, it'll probably deepen the divide for a bit longer. I mean, I think maybe in another year things will calm down a little. Uh, I mean, I think certainly the conservatives see this as an opportunity to try and paint uh, Horvath as you know angry Andrea, and uh, so I could see them wanting to you know rather than using this as a time to say okay let's just bring it down a notch and, and improve. Uh, the, the the manner of acting in the legislature. I think they see it more as an opportunity to try and frame Andrea Horvath as someone who's, uh, you know, not premier material. Was it contrived? Uh, well, uh, you know, having not seen it, I don't know if it was contrived or not, but, uh, you know, presumably when you're the leader of the opposition, you nevertheless have to uh, keep your hands to yourself, right? So, you know, whatever the degree of it was, uh, just with, like, the Ruth Ellen Brasso case, right, there's... Uh, uh, you can't be uh, putting your hands on members of the other party. And, uh, 
I think, you know, it wasn't, you know, maybe it was somewhat contrived, but uh, nevertheless, you know, the, the line was crossed that should not be crossed in our parliament. Peter, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. You're welcome. Good talking with you again. Peter Grape, of course, uh, from McMaster University. Uh, by the way, we should mention that uh, we did reach out to uh, both of the participants in uh, the brawl yesterday, such as it was. Uh, Donna Skelly apparently is unavailable all day today, and uh, we reached out to the NDP, and uh, Andrew Horvath apparently was not available either, uh, which is probably not surprising. Maybe I'm sure this, their advisors probably told both of them, look, just stay away from the microphones for a couple of days. Or they're reveling in it. I guess you never really know how they're going to respond to this, do you? You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, we are uh, past the first day of cannabis being legal here in this country. Uh, As Paul Tipple just told you on CHML News, yeah, there are some tickets handed out because uh, the rules are in place. If you're going to buy the stuff now, you have to know what the rules are. But what about those stores that have been in operation for the last little while? Some have been raided. Some of them have been shut down. Uh, some are considering since, uh, you know, a year from now, they're probably going to be handing out licenses. Maybe there just should be amnesty to this. Well, let's talk with one of them. Clint Young is the CEO of MMJ in Canada here in Hamilton, joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed. Uh, Clint, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hey, Bill. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Uh, we, we talked about this as, as operating on an, as a quote-unquote illegal operation, of course, a couple of weeks ago when you were on the show with us. Uh, has anything changed now that, that, that the cannabis is legal? Well, um, you know, we spoke a, few, a couple months back, Bill, about uh, illegal, uh, you know, especially on a retail side. But, um, you know, MMJ Canada has always been straight medicinal. That's who they are. Um, bill C-45 is a retail recreational bill that has passed. Uh, it has nothing to do with medicinal. They still haven't, you know, besides the mail order system that they have in place, which has been deemed unconstitutional by uh, Justice Philan in 2012, uh, in a, uh, the Supreme Court judge, which stated that, you know, it's it's not really the best scenario for sick patients. Um, it's really uh, hasn't been decided on how it's going to go. Now, with MMJ Canada, um, they're going to continue to operate. Uh, I stepped back, Bill, as uh, the CEO of MMJ Canada, um, on the 14th, uh, you know, the plan was to shut the stores down. And then I had a chat with all my staff uh, because, you know, I'm going to be trying to help the city not mess this up. So, you know, uh, I've been, I'm going to be sitting with Larry Deany and, uh, you know, Ken Leanders and uh, his team to try to make sure that the AGCO and the people that are in this come April are, are, you know, proper players and all that. But, you know, it was made very clear to my attention from multiple people that, you know, you couldn't actively be playing both sides of the fence anymore. And, so if you're going to be you know, an advisor, you can't be, you can't benefit from that. So exactly. obviously you've got to step yeah. down. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was clearly the hardest decision that I've, I've ever made. Um, you know, I, I love MMJ Canada. You know, we built the mental health organization. We've been helping sick people. And, you know, it was, it was, you know, I, I either tell my staff, listen, I'm following these rules and we're shutting these store down because I don't want to risk it. And then they get out all of their jobs. The 62,000 patients that we serve, Bill, are completely affected, and they are patients. I have, I would say 80% of the people that come to MMJ Canada are legitimately sick. Um, a lot of my staff have children. Uh, you know, they, they rely on this job for a paycheck. They, you know, it's, nobody's ever making enough that it's like, you know, they're, they're banking all this money that they're, they're safe. And then on top of it, too, they've, they've really, really loved and come to know a lot of these people that they're helping, and they weren't ready to, to shut down. And I asked them, and I, you know, I, I left it up to them, and I asked them what they wanted to do, and I said that there was an option, but this was, 
the result of it. And I, I would have to step back. And, you know, they decided they wanted to stay open. And I wasn't going to risk 200 people's well-being that, especially on the medicinal front, Billy, I, I, Bill, I could tell you this much. When it comes to <clears throat> if there is a company that's going to win the medicinal front and challenge this and take it to the highest level and, and be successful, it's MMJ Canada. Um, I know that because that's how I built it. Um, so what's the challenge? No, what, what, what challenge? Now, as I say, you've stepped aside from this, but you're certainly familiar yeah, yeah. with the, the situation. Uh, to, 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 to mount a legal challenge takes an awful lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of research exactly. into this, too. So what, yeah. what exactly do they want to see? Well, they, from my understanding, they don't know right now. They haven't really touched the like, C45 just straight wreck, right? It's, hey, you're 19, you want to go to the OCS or get your cannabis here. Here's the store. That's what's coming. I get that. But medicinal is different. We don't know what they want. We just know that if uh, they, they just know now, the, the, the new people uh, that are running MMJ Canada know that if they run it medicinally, that they have a challenge when they go to get shut down. So if the province wants to shut them down, their challenge is going to be is we're helping patients get access to medicine. Now, it's not a recreational point that they're coming from. Now, people are like, well, that's not going to hold up. They can just say the system's in place, which there is a system in place. But it's already been deemed unconstitutional in a court of law. And two, it hasn't been decided. If they say, hey, well, they're going to go with pharmacies. Well, okay, great. Go with pharmacies or storefronts that are medicinal. They haven't even talked about it. So when the staff said, hey, we believe in this medicinally, we want to fight that medicinally, and we want to be, you know, Jack Lloyd, who is uh, MMJ Canada's lawyer, uh, he's the best lawyer in Canada, in cannabis. Him, Kirk Tucson, and Jack Lloyd. Uh, it started with John Conroy. Um uh, pardon me, it started with John Conroy, and then, you know, he turned it down to Kirk Tusa, who was my lawyer forever, and then joined. he joined Canopy uh, because of all of his hard work, and, you know, like, he was the winner of a, a lot of court cases against the government, and now it's rolled down to my personal lawyer and, and, and MMG Canada's lawyer, uh, Jack Lloyd. All right, and listen, so, this, uh, I, I'm just getting an email from one of our listeners here, as you and I are talking about this, Clint, asking a yeah. I, I question that I'm sure a lot of people have on their minds right now. If, if yeah. medical marijuana is legal, why are they hassling you if that's what you're doing? Well, it, it's, it's weird. They're not really, nobody said that they're really hassling us. You know, there's just, that, yeah, nobody, nobody's even said that. They were beforehand, and it's because the government is very unaware of how people, places are operating. So everybody's getting painted with the same brush. So, so you, are you, do you feel that the government is conflating recreational with medical? Yeah, well, I just don't think there's enough understanding. I don't think they're doing it on purpose. I don't think anybody's doing anything on purpose. I don't think there's enough understanding. And I think that there is a clear separation of medicinal. And whether it's going to go into pharmacies or they're going to challenge just the online mail order system or if it's going to go into retail wellness boutique dispensaries, that hasn't been decided yet. Nobody's talked about it. It's only been about C45. It's only been about rec. So there's a lot of people that are going without because everybody wants these places to shut down until April. And it's like, well, you have 60,000 patients along with MMJ. There's patients all through Hamilton and Canada and dispensaries, especially in Ontario, that are going without. And the ones that are acting and have been basing their whole, you know, business uh, side of things on the medicinal point of view, not the recreational and helping patients, uh, their patients are getting scared. Their patients are freaking out emailing. Uh, there's, there's staff that are saying, this isn't right. We want to keep moving forward. Um, it's not my, you know, I left it into my staff's hands to make the decision if that's the choice they wanted to go, moving forward, knowing what potential risks there were. And not, you know, I think one person left and everybody else 
that was the route they wanted to go. Uh, I want to help the city from this side to make sure that they don't mess this up. And I want to make sure that they learn that there's a difference between recreational and medicinal. And I want to help as much as I can from the inside out now. Well, uh, and part of the know, problem, part of the problem you're facing here is, is look, let's, let's put this right on the table. An awful lot of the people that are drafting legislation for this at the federal level have probably have no concept of whether you're even talking about. Uh, but, you know, and they're, they're yeah. trying to get as much information as they can. And but obviously it's, it's going to, not all of it's going to sink in. But there's supposed to be yeah. a protocol in place right now. Like you, let, let's, let's, I want to come back to, to square one here for just a second, if I could, Clint. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody walks yeah, into sure. your store. And not your store yeah. now, obviously, but if they go into MMJ and said, look, I've got yeah. Crohn's disease or I've got uh, you know degenerative disc disease and I need this for pain control, yeah. do you just sell them yeah. some stuff or do you need so, to see some... No. some uh, no, so no, no, I, no, 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 you, no. you don't just sell it over the counter. Well, if that's in place and if that's what's happening, then they shouldn't be bothering you. Well, I, I, I and I agree. And, you know, and that's why the, the staff and the lawyer said, you know, Jack said, you know, you, you definitely have a... a uh, you know, a, a case on medicinal still, he believes, like, you know, that's not quoting him, but it's like, you know, and, and the staff believe it. And, you know, people even like you were saying, you know, they should they should be left alone, especially, Bill, that this online order thing, everybody knows that it's not working. It's not working. Many federal judges have said it. They need to figure it out. But they knew that recreational would take dominance. So that has been the topic. And then they said, oh, we'll deal with medicinal later. So it's like, OK, well, what do you do when you tell all these dispensaries? to shut down because yes majority of them are medicinal but when you paint them all with the same brush and you say hey you need to shut down now or you're not getting a license until april that location that you're operating in has been obsolete and has been going to be like skunked so it can never be used again for even new brands if you don't shut down and you'll be risking fines well then it becomes now it's like well what about these sick people and i get Ford. He's doing a great job you know he's fixing a lot of the shit that when pardon my language um messed up um, but again, it's when it comes to the medicinal side and, and what MMJ is fighting for, it's like these people cannot go, Bill, six months. You think I'm going to tell? No, I, I, we, we get that. If somebody, if somebody, we all, we've talked about this many times. If, if somebody's suffering yeah, from well, chronic pain, obviously they need immediate relief and they can't wait for this sort of stuff. Well, so that, that's well, a point like, that's well taken. Like, and I listen, I get that. Uh, and and there may well be legal action, and there may be something that's going to go before the courts, and and we will have to wait until we actually see what it actually looks like. But I got a couple of minutes yeah, left here, yeah. and I want to go back to something yeah. you said right at the sure. beginning. Okay, uh, sure. what's this committee that you're working on at the city? You, you mentioned Ken Leendertz, who's well, of course in so, charge of bylaw enforcement. Yeah, so, Larry Diani, yeah, yeah. of course, so is a consultant. Yes, because uh, Larry's been working with me for a while now, and essentially what we're, we're trying to do is to make sure that the councillors are well-prepped and educated on, you know, the voting of dispensaries. Uh, because, you know, let's let's put it this way, Bill, if, if, if they don't vote yes on dispensaries, whether it's medicinal or not, that really poses a problem. Uh, there is 83 dispensaries here. To me, that'll start a war. Like, I, I, I just think it'll be the worst possible thing while we're in the middle of a revival and, uh, you know, uh, really changing Hamilton around. So, you know, the city's been amazingly proactive, Ken, and so is Larry, and, and, you know, to do things proper and to make sure that this is done right. And, you know, we even tried for temp permits for even dispensaries to exist until April, and the province went, no way. So, like, this is how proactive they've been. So it's like, to me, I can help a lot from the inside out with my expertise. Um, MMJ Canada, they can do their own thing and operate medicinally. And to me, it's like... I, I, I didn't have an option anymore. It's like, how much more could I help from the inside while the other people are fighting on that side? Or am I just going to be ineffective all around? And it's, 
to me, it's what Ken and them are trying to do. Uh, having Larry as my mentor, I have, I hope that my voice and, and my, my education in this industry for the last seven years and from helping uh, places like Berlin and, 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 you know, being involved in the Vancouver regulations and Nelson and all, all across Canada, I hope that they really listen because we have a chance to do it differently than anyone else. We have a chance to really set the standard in Hamilton and do it right. And, you know, um, I want, I want to see it flourish all the way around. And I want MMJ Canada, uh, the team that they, they have put in place, I'm happy that they're they're fighting for the patients. I'm very proud. Because, All right, how did this how did this you know, come about? How did you mentioned Ken Leaners, who's a city employee right now? Uh, did he ask you to do this? Did the city council ask you to do this, or are you guys just freelancing well, here? Uh, well, no, 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 we're not freelancing. And so I, I asked Larry Deany to set everything up, and uh, you know, uh, I, I asked Jason Farr to, to 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 ask to see if he could get me in front of these people because I really wanted to talk about uh, everything because you know. Bill, like it's like when I have to answer to the, the patients, my staff, and then trying to help to do what's right within the city to talk to maybe whatever they're putting towards the AGCO, I have to think of everybody's well-being, right? So to me, stepping back to help them was the smartest thing to do. Uh, you know, Larry said to me, you know, your voice is going to be very important in something like this. And I mean, if this, if this could be what helps Hamilton, what helps even MMJ down the road when when they're battling what they're battling, I, I want to be a part. I want to be a voice. I want to be, uh, uh, you know, someone who has a positive impact on stuff that may not be going right at this moment and things that need to be adjusted. Uh, I want to really be a, a, a part of this, and I think I, I have a, a very good influence, and I, I think I'll be very well. You've got so, you've got some knowledge, and and that you're one up on an awful lot of other people. Uh, however, this next council is going to be constituted. I don't even know who's going to be on the next city council. We'll know that after Monday night. I know. <laughs> but but it's going to be it's yeah. all about attitude and how they're going to do this and enforcement uh, because there there are yeah. provincial bodies as you know of course as a business operator yeah. that are going to be involved I mean Alcohol and Gaming Commission of is Ontario is is the one that can make decisions as to whether or not they're going to shut something down so you have to have provincial put it yeah. input into this as well it's yeah. rather complicated yeah yeah oh, of course and you know and that's what I mean it's like um, the patients can't go without, so you need to make that decision to make sure they're protected. The staff need to make a decision on if they want, and then the city municipality, well, we all know, uh, Bill, they're going to be handcuffed uh, to a certain extent, but they do have uh, you know, people in place and point men that are working with the province, AGCO, things like that, where we can get information to them. And I think the more we educate the AGCO, I think the more we push forward and really you know, separate the medicinal conversation uh, to, from the recreational, I'm hoping that they understand that there's a bigger, a bigger uh, vision here at play than just recreational dollars and, and money coming in and out. Uh, because if it does get wrapped up in to the court system, the medicinal challenges, man, what another waste of $30 million. Like, well, it's, it's going to be difficult. And, and again, I think it goes back to the yeah. first thing we mentioned is that a lot of the people that are actually drafting this legislation and the regulations don't really know a whole lot about what they're talking about. Uh, we, we're just about out of yeah. time. Clint, I'll tell you what, we'll stay in yeah. touch on this and uh, we'll get an update from you a little yeah. while down the road and see how things are going. But I appreciate the time today. Thanks, Bill. Have a wonderful day. You too. Clint Young, who is the former CEO of MMJ Canada, uh, and apparently now is going to be working uh, in some advisory capacity for the city and helping them to try to get things going. Uh, you know, that's what we said yesterday. I mean, we're one day into this legalization of cannabis right now, and boy, there's a whole lot of misinformation still out there. And, uh, well, we're going to have to sift through that. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.